Hello and welcome to The Chiefs, a new strand on Monocle 24's big interview series. I'm Tyler Brulé. Over the course of the series, I'll be speaking to chief execs, chief marketing officers, chief strategists, editors-in-chief, COOs, and more about getting to the other side of the current crisis and what it might look like when we get there. Today, we speak to Scott Malcolm from his home in southwest London, and he's the founder and CEO of the luxury shopping village Behemoth Value Retail. From Shanghai to Frankfurt, London to Shuzhou, Malcolm's 11 retail wonderlands comprise the Bister Village shopping collection, some of the world's most productive retail spaces in sales space per square foot. But despite their unique success as COVID-19 spread and lockdowns followed suit, just like their high street neighbors, Value Retail's boutiques also had to swiftly shut up shop. So how did Value Retail respond and keep their shareholders and their 458 brand partners happy? And if fixing the issues that plagued physical retail before the current crisis is the key to making it to the other side, how should the industry go about it? I'm Tyler Brulé here in Zurich, and I'm delighted to welcome Scott Malcolm to the Chief's edition of The Big Interview. Scott, very good to talk to you. Maybe we should, um, of course, rewind a little bit, of course, given the time and the moment that, that we're in. You have global reach in terms of your portfolio, where you operate, etc. Uh, when did you see things perhaps coming down the track in a way that you thought, you know, we really need to respond and, and maybe a little bit faster than what you saw your peer group doing? And, and maybe what were those actions in, in very early days for the business? The logical first thing one would do would be to make sure that uh, all the cash is found, <laughs> protected, that everything is precise. And in theory, we all know that already, but no one's record keeping is designed for a complete stop of the business. And then the second thing would be something about making sure one's top talent is stable and has a shared vision of what the path forward looks like, even if the path forward in the immediate moment is to go backwards. And then the third thing would be to have a very honest black and white assessment of what the world could look like under different versions of the same basic scenario, which is, in our case, easier to comprehend perhaps emotionally because we had lived through it in the prior weeks in China where things get locked down and shut down, how would one respond? So we actually started every day, seven days a week, a 7.30 a.m. team call with seven of our leaders based in Europe and one of our senior team based in China. And then a second call every day at 6 p.m. The colleague in China was off the hook for that one. The reality is it's never possible for me to anticipate exactly where the conversation will go on execution. The decisions on strategy turned out to be pretty straightforward. If, if the first, if an early strategic requirement is figure out where all the cash is, make sure that nothing is confused, misplaced, then how does one do it? Whom does one involve? If, if a goal is to keep full employment, but reduce costs in other ways to maintain employment, how does one do that? It worked because there was a consistent, positive approach. But I think that a number of leaders I've spent time with are sufficiently jarred. They had such a clear vision of where they were going, how they were going to get there, and why it was all going to work, that when all the rules changed, they seem emotionally subdued and overwhelmed and I think that is not the path that's most likely to generate the 
leadership across the management team that one needs to address something like what all of us are living through right now. It's interesting when you cite those leaders, do you see it more within the private sector or are you also casting your lens across the, the political sphere as well when you've looked at nations or or cities? And it, when you think about, of course, your group, you're very tethered, you know, certainly not maybe at the core of a city, but you are you are certainly also have a relationship, obviously, you know, with large urban agglomerations. So I'm wondering when when you think about those those leaders who maybe been caught in the headlights a little bit. Is it both sides, both public and private sector? Yes, I think one is looking for people who are what I would call compatible mavericks. One is looking for people who are willing to work with others, but who do not start the process by asking themselves, how can we maintain the status quo? How can we defend or preserve the status quo? And I think in larger organizations, particularly in government, those people are often there as special appointees or advisors. They are often there tolerated but not embraced. The old adage that uh, peacetime generals don't necessarily make good wartime generals. And it, I think country by country, one sees an adaptation and drawing in of, of talent to support institutions, be they government bodies or universities. I'm a trustee of a group called Partners in Health, which is an extraordinary organization. And they've done a huge amount of work in Sierra Leone during the Ebola pandemic. So they can take ideas like that and completely reinvent their thinking to try to support a response to coronavirus. But they exist within the world of state healthcare systems and large insurance companies in North America and governments around the world. And they have that ability to be accepted on, on, on multiple fronts. And I think in government, one doesn't find that terribly often. I live in London, and I think that one of the things that has characterized the UK's response is that the senior team around the prime minister, and including the prime minister, had just gone through an election cycle and barely been in office in this new government. So they weren't stale. They were fresh in a sense. The moment was beginning. When I look at organizations or companies that need a change of leadership, I have a hard time imagining how someone new coming in to reposition or redefine the path of an organization of a government could start at this moment with the same strengths and that a, a new, sharp, fresh leadership team has built in. And then I think a team that's that's exhausted and worn down being hit by some new challenge uh, is also less good. So it can exist in, in government. It doesn't naturally exist in government, in my experience. Scott, you touched on cash and preservation of cash very, very early on, but it's something which you know, your name has sort of hit the headlines and it's been across emails and a variety of things because you did something very interesting as well, thinking about your tenants and your tenant space. And I can certainly say as a company, which of course has, you know, we're paying rent in a number of corners of the world. It's again, the first thing we think about is cash as well. You did something remarkable with your tenants and maybe I'll let you explain the story and how you've, how you've approached it. Our goal is to be a partner with our brands and to have an alignment of interests and to succeed together and, and to have incentives to identify and achieve success together. And 
one of the reasons we were so focused on cash is that we wanted to make sure we could support the brands, our partners, fully. And the clearest way to support them is to avoid any charges to them when we are closed for business because clearly they have no income. It's the right thing to not charge whether or not we have the legal authority to charge. We believe that partnership is fundamental. It's not just words, but there are moments where one can can demonstrate commitment and demonstrate partnership. So we didn't try to make a big dramatic statement. We simply tried to be factual and we are not charging anyone in this quarter of the year where we are not open. We've reopened in China. We've reopened outside of Frankfurt at Vertheim Village. We expect the rest of our villages to open over the, over the next six weeks or so in Europe. But I think there are moments of truth, and, and we were lucky enough to be in a position where we could stand forward and do the right thing. My board, our, you know, our shareholders, they, they need to be convinced that taking the longer term, at least the medium term view, is, is reasonable because everyone is so cautious right now that what we did wasn't something they would have necessarily selected. But our job is to manage the business and we're structured in a way that management is responsible for making those sorts of decisions. Did you make that decision and, and of course, with the eventual endorsement of your, of your board in a one-dimensional sense or, or was it through a variety of, of, of lenses at a point? Because it is interesting, that's, you know, anyone who is a tenant wants to, of course, think, okay, great, I can breathe. I don't have to worry about this quarter. But, you know, the flip side is that if you stuck to it, we all have long memories. And was this also through a lens of, of partnership and long-term relationship as well, Scott? The answer is yes. We absolutely have relationships that go back with brand CEOs 25 or 30 years. As we started our business, people had to believe in us and give us the chance to, to try things, make mistakes, find solutions. We work with 458 fashion brands. We don't have exactly the same relationship with every single one. And, and some of those brand CEOs are really in difficult positions, placed in difficult positions by current events and have less or less supported by teams to adapt and be agile the way we were discussing earlier. Others are in a strong position, relatively speaking, but for everyone, it's a moment of enormous challenge and stress. We've always said we're not in the real estate business. We're in the business of serving the brands as a partner. And by that, we don't mean partner as a word, but supplier as a definition. We really embrace this alignment logic and we are primarily staffed ourselves by retailers who worked for these same brands. And I'm confident that the only reason they will work, and they're very good, and I'm confident that the only reason they will work with us, be part of our family as value retail is because our commitment is authentic and they know that they can do the right thing and we'll back them. So in some sense, this was a, of course, a meaningful message to communicate to the brands who are our partners in the commercial alliance, but also important to our board and most important, arguably, to our own people, uh, to my colleagues, that, that if we really have something that is a core belief, we fight to deliver on that belief.
Now, I don't believe you're sitting in London with a crystal ball in front of you. You might be, but I want to talk about the consumer, Scott. And as you said, you're open outside of Frankfurt right now. We are in the midst of Europe reopening market by market and, and again with a very mixed picture. Maybe we can just explore consumer sentiment for a moment. We've seen a lot of depressing numbers and the consumer is going to take a long time to come back. You do have an expert's view of different corners of the world. Are you that pessimistic? Or do you think we're going to see, fueled by summertime in this hemisphere, et cetera, that it's, it's going to be maybe a speedier bounce back, not in terms of, of what the indicators are going to be on my Bloomberg ticker, but actually what's going to happen at the tills in July and in August for all of your brand partners? So the first thing is natural evolution will accelerate. The second thing is it's absolutely clear that great experience online cannot deliver the emotional gratification and satisfaction of the physical, memorable, on-the-ground, in-person experience. The human qualities, the touch, when delivered well, that surprise and delight, that captured moment of emotion, that doesn't come through online. What comes through online is greater efficiency, information on delivery timings, and a package at the door. Every step of the way, it's clear that the virtual is a core component, but not a replacement for the human. But what's also true is that people will be intimidated by, challenged by this virus and have a pattern of adjusting that doesn't happen overnight. In China, our two villages there, in Shanghai and Suzhou, are back to above exceeding last year's levels of performance at this same point in the year. In Germany, we just opened and the pattern again is lower footfall to start, stronger spending. We don't see people abandoning consumption. What we do see is completely different patterns. So what is easier or more efficient to buy online will now migrate online, as I, as I said, the traveling luxury consumer, the, the woman we serve, she'll be at home. So we will serve her in her home. She's looking for great experiences, great quality within her local environment. And that's what we're doing already. So our, our spending in the early days in Germany is coming from people who live within 25, 30 miles. And they're seeking us out. In Shanghai, we're having people who've never been to us and aren't going to go to Europe anytime soon, looking for what I'll call the European experience and the European standard of excellence. And chap came the other day and spent $50,000 in one afternoon in Shanghai Village. He didn't know us except that he heard about us because he wanted to find something differentiated. So I think this idea of differentiation is where the physical can win scale and volume and efficiency is where the digital will win. You mentioned, of course, we're going to probably see an acceleration of the demise of, of many brands. And also this is going to be a period of good for, for many others, whether it is their uh, the, the product lineup, uh, their approach to service um, is going to you know, certainly help accelerate things. You know, if you can look ahead to when it comes time for 
lease renewals and the conversations that you have with many businesses, do you see a much bigger realignment? Because obviously, you know, you, you start some people off small. They, of course, they do well. They need a bigger space. Maybe some people get moved around. Does this become a little bit more complicated chessboard for you, Scott? I think are designed to be agile in a moment like this. We don't actually write leases. We write licensing agreements and we don't actually charge rent. We are taking a royalty payment based on sales achieved. In a normal year, in our 11 villages, some 25% of the brands change, bigger, smaller, or different. And often the moves, because we're fully occupied, carry knock-on shifts. And our teams are trained not just to try to analyze and anticipate what the moves might look like, but they are inevitably required to have terrific ambassadorial skill because no brand wants to move, particularly when they feel the boutique is working just fine the way it is and they have so many other pressures imposed upon them in their normal cycle of the year, let alone at a time like this. The biggest issue for delivering great experience to the guest, to the customer, is the way the brands themselves individually will get organized, get relaunched, and respond to that customer. And our job is to be as supportive as we can be, anything from helping in the back room, getting the stock organized to get it out on the floor. We don't do that regularly, but we've done it. And the brands run very complicated, almost overwhelmingly complex global businesses at this point. And our job is to make their lives better when they work with us. In a sense, it's a privilege because there's an artistry involved and we have the opportunity to employ the intellectual and emotional qualities to deliver great merchandise mix solutions and great merchandise experiences by working with the brands as partners. And tell me, if you look at a European summer ahead, North American summer ahead, also what's happening in, in China as well, someone who's a regular customer, aside from you know how you might have rearranged uh, or at least tried to piece together the jigsaw puzzle, what changes are you putting into effect? I'm not talking about the ones that are legislated because those are kind of givens. I, I'm just saying in terms of the real experience of getting people to have a great day, to come out, to spend, to enjoy it. What types of things are you thinking about to, yeah, obviously to entice and, and hopefully, of course, ensure that people leave with some full shopping bags? Of the 458 brands we have, some 20-25% have already said they would like to have more space. And another 20-25% are considering the request for more space. And nobody wants to leave. The first step is to make the experience better, make the merchandise mix stronger. Every time a brand changes, you get the A-team coming in with the best shop fit the best merchandising skills, the best visual merchandising skills. So that's that's a piece of it. A second piece would be what we're calling a safe shopping protocols. And we've done all of these already in China, everything from temperature testing with thermal testing guns that are done remotely as opposed to something held up as a thermometer against a forehead, to physical distancing, to cleanliness standards. We'll do everything we can obviously in conjunction with local regulatory requirements, which are evolving rapidly and somewhat randomly. 
so that there's a sense of safety and comfort for the guest. Lastly, what we always try to do, which is transcend the guest's expectations. So magnificent horticulture rather than landscaping or raising the bar, changing the nature of what food offer will be there. When restaurants may not be allowed to open for months or might have enormous social distancing requirements, how can we create sparkle and energy through the food offer by working with people who have particular talent, who who are not simply pursuing a mechanical approach? And then finally, we have brands, we call them sparkle brands, who add to that sense of discovery they are typically younger or evolving. They will be suffering enormously in this climate. They're not typically well-capitalized and owned by the big groups. And we'll be going out of our way to support them. And in addition to support young designers in different markets, we've done that in at Fidenza Village outside of Milan, at Bister Village outside of London, working usually with fashion councils, someone who's going to help uh, legislate and nurture this talent. And the combination of all this energy of creative people and the velocity of the young ends up feeding into the environment and everything feels different. So we'll push harder on that than ever before because what we want to do is create an oasis of pleasure, comfort, and safety that feels a counterpoint to all the stress of normal life, which is always more than one would wish. And this summer is going to be particularly high. I want to jump across the Atlantic and look at the real estate and, and, and retail landscape. What's your view? Is this the end of the line for the, the traditional mall, no matter how upscale or not it is in the United States as we know it? Do we move into a very significant period of, of reckoning, reconfiguring what our inner cities, our suburbs look like? These, yeah, these massive expanses of, of asphalt and generally mediocre architecture. Regional malls in North America and to a lesser degree, their analogs in Europe rely on anchor tenants, historically department stores, and those stores became parts of large consolidated financially led organizations where the skills of a merchant and the roles of a merchant were eliminated. And they became, in the purest sense, distribution channels rather than Emporia. And those department stores end up competing with the two most magnificently successful distribution channels that have emerged in the modern economy in the US, Walmart and Amazon. They're both superb at what they do. And the department store, generally speaking, has failed to reinvent itself to compete with the strengths that those two organizations have neither of which is led truly by merchants and neither of which has all of the answers. But the department stores have bit by bit destroyed themselves in the face of competition. Those department stores will substantially reduce a number. As they do, they will trigger loan defaults and they will trigger cross-tenancy defaults. And it's going to be a lot of work for everyone to untangle what results and figure out what the the jewels of the future will be. There will be physical retail. There will be shopping malls. 
that will have real value going forward, but they will be there will be many fewer and they will have particular characteristics in each location that will make it harder to standardize and run generically. And the owners of these malls typically are, again, financially led and looking to the retailers themselves for the the input that makes them attractive and special, that sparkle we were talking about. And the retailers are in disarray culturally, financially. The department stores are in disarray. The bankruptcies will be real. The leadership will come more from the financial sector with all of these pressures on the, the companies in retail. In short, it's going to be a challenging and bleak period for physical retail in the mall format and potentially even in the urban, if you'd like, great shopping streets format, because if the brands are trying to standardize 3,000 units around the globe by making decisions that are imposed upon them, how does a specific store become a flagship, a showcase? It's hard. I think only in the case where the brand has decided that physical retail of any type is by definition a flagship at the airport on a great shopping street in one of our villages in the Bicester Village Shopping Collection. Until the brand makes that commitment, it's still just a pipeline, not part of the brand's identity, not part of the brand's value proposition. And there are relatively few people thinking like I'm describing today. They've been held in suspicion by the business as normal perspective. And it could be that this financial crisis that will result from the aftermath of COVID will liberate some companies to, to do amazing things. Vittorio Radici reinvented Selfridges because nobody was paying attention because it was buried into a public company that everyone ignored. That's how he had the freedom to, to do remarkable things. There may be some examples like that, but generally boards of financial people appointing other financial people to run these businesses and imposing financial requirements that sound responsible will destroy much of what makes retail work. And it will take time to recover from that. Scott, I want to end on a high note, though. I want people to put their headphones down or continue listening to Monocle 24 and also feel inspired. If, if I am one of those sparkle brands, if I feel that I was in the month of March on my way up, but as you said, I maybe wasn't that well capitalized, but I've still got a great product, or I'm just, I'm a passionate consumer. If we look across uh, the next couple of quarters, why should I feel excited, though, if I'm a brand or if I'm an informed customer? Change creates opportunity. And as it's inevitable, when it arrives in a disruptive form, it can mean that those who imagine participating in the world that emerges after that disruption will be looking for those brands, for that energy, for that sparkle. The trick is that a lot of great entrepreneurs, by definition, have a hard time working with more conventional business executives but the conventional business executive pool will be widely available because so many companies will be chaotic and many will suffer financial challenges. The people who truly are inspiring creators and entrepreneurs will have product that 
does work, that does resonate, that does inspire. And the funding partners, we talk to these guys all the time. They have the money. They want to spend the money as the economy comes back. They know the economy will come back. They want to participate and they need to find homes for this money. So the combination of talent on the creative side, talent on the managerial side, and what I would call talented investors creates a wonderful moment where there is no queue. You're not standing number 50 in line to get someone's attention. There will be relatively few distractions, surprisingly few opportunities for the money. And this will be a moment where the next round of great achievements begins. So that's the positive, uh, that's the positive message I can share with you today. Scott Malkin, really fantastic to talk to you here on Monocle 24. Thank you very much. My thanks to Scott Malcolm of Value Retail for joining us for this week's episode of the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview. Look out for our next episode with Swedbank CEO Jens Henriksen. The Big Interview is produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Jack Jewers. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.